So now as Andrew prayed, we turn our attention to God's word to hear the preached word this morning. And it's not unusual to hear the preached word in church. You expect that. You've heard many sermons, I bet. Uh, But what is unusual is to hear an original sermon, a first sermon, the first sermon of the church. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the very first sermon ever preached. I've been, uh, since January, actually been reading a lot about Billy Graham. And uh, the latest book I was reading is called The Preacher and the Presidents. Fascinating book, uh, fascinating look at the life of Billy Graham. And I wondered this week, I wondered how many sermons Billy Graham has preached. And some of you are better researchers on your phone and the internet than me. So if you can figure that out, if you can find that, please let me know how many sermons it's estimated that Billy Graham preached. But in six decades, it's bound to be uh, many, right? It's bound to be many. But I read a story this week about Billy Graham and his first sermon. Billy Graham's first sermon was to 40 people when he was 18 years old uh, in Florida. I forget the town in Florida as he was a student at Florida Bible Institute. And uh, he preached to 40 people and his sermon ended eight minutes after he started. And an elderly gentleman in the congregation came up to Billy Graham, this is told through a friend, and he says, boy, you better get back to school and learn some more. You're never going to make it. (laughs) Well, he made it. He went back to school and he honed his craft. And I don't know how many uh, sermons he's preached, but over six decades, he has visited 185 countries. It's estimated that 80 million people have heard Billy Graham preach. It's estimated that 3 million people have responded to Billy Graham's message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Amazing. And an amazing preacher who illustrates what we're going to talk about as we look at Acts chapter 2 this morning. This morning we get the privilege of hearing the first ever sermon preached not by Billy Graham, not by yours truly, but preached by the Apostle Peter. So open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, and I'm actually going to read a big chunk of Acts 2. We're going to go back and pick up where we left off uh, a couple weeks ago. And by the way, in terms of preaching, I want to thank Jay, Jay uh, Wheeland, our children's director, for covering for me last week, preaching the Word. So uh, if you missed it, please go back and listen to it. I listened to it this week. Great job. Uh, He did preaching for us last week out of Colossians. But picking up back in our study of Acts, let's read. You can follow along with me, and I'm actually going to ask you to stand in honor and respect of God's Word. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, okay? 1 through 41. Now, you have to stay standing for 41 verses, Richard. I know your back hurts, but you can do it. But if you need to, sit down, you may. Beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message given by Peter, not only to that first crowd, that first gathering church, but also to us today. And we pray, Lord, as we look into your word that we might see and we might worship Jesus, the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who ascended to your right hand, and the one who is coming back for those who know him. Lord, we pray that you might make our hearts more affectionate to Jesus, that we might love him, that we might serve him, that we might tell about him in our world. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So there it is, the first sermon ever preached, the first Christian sermon preached by Peter. And before we look at kind of our main points, a couple of things we might just say out from the beginning. Uh, first of all, you might think, well, uh, Ross, this just took you about three minutes to read, so shouldn't your sermons be about three minutes long, and what can you possibly add to the first and one of the best sermons ever given? Well, let me just tell you from the text, okay? Flip over, look there in verse 40, where it says that we have a summary here of the message, okay? It wasn't just three minutes long, though it took us about three minutes to read it. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, okay? So sermons are not just intended from the Bible to be three minutes long. This is a distillation. This is a summary of that great sermon that Peter preached. So cut me some slack. Not only should we notice the length of it, though summarized here quickly, probably much longer than that, we should also notice who the, the messenger is. And the messenger is none other than Peter. And what do we know about Peter? Not the, per, the most perfect of disciples, right? The very one, Peter, the very one that denied Jesus in front of a little girl the night that, that uh, Jesus was betrayed. Peter says, never, never heard of the guy. Jesus from Galilee, don't know him. And then at the third crow of the rooster, he realizes, oh, Jesus told me this would happen. Peter, the one so bold, often at the beginning, failed his Savior three times. And yet, that one that was so weak in faith, that one that was so all talk, but slow to walk, is now giving the first message of Jesus' church. What does that indicate? That it indicates to you and to me that no matter how much you have hurt the reputation of Jesus, no how much you have uh, denied Jesus in your life, Jesus, that very same Jesus, can forgive you and replace you in a place of ministry and influence. He did it with Peter himself. From denier to proclaimer. 
from weak in faith to bold in faith preaching here. And the one that denied Jesus three times here gets to be the mouthpiece of Jesus and a front row seat as not three, but 3,000 people respond to his message. And my prayer this morning is that just a few of you will respond to this message. 3,000 people added to the church, 3,000 people that met Jesus because of this first sermon. Now, we looked at the beginning of this a few weeks ago, and so by way of review, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, how at Pentecost here, the Spirit came in power, and all of a sudden, they were speaking in other languages, and it was miraculous, it was spectacular, and it was quite the experience. And we asked the question from verse 12 of chapter 2, as they asked, what does this mean? And so I answered that question briefly two weeks ago, and we said it means a new era has arrived with the Spirit, okay, which means this is the beginning of the church. And now for the church age, anyone who believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes not just temporarily, but permanently to indwell believers. A new era has arrived with the Spirit. Secondly, a new people is being formed by the Spirit, and that's the church, that's local churches and the church universal as Jesus, as, as Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, worked through Israel in the Old Testament. The, the chosen instrument in this era is this new people, the church, that we'll see develop as we go through this study of Acts. And thirdly, a new power is ours in the Spirit. The Spirit descended upon those first believers, upon that first church in power. And we may not experience the tongues that they did, you might, but we will at least experience the power of Jesus in some way through the Holy Spirit. This power is still ours. And if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the ways that that power is explained to us through the New Testament uh, as we uh, see it illustrated through uh, the early church and through the epistles of Paul. The power that we have through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells us, anyone who believes in Jesus, to empower us beyond our human abilities. Peter didn't just suddenly become this awesome preacher. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do that. God did that through him because of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at the the second part of Acts chapter 2 today, and then next week we will follow it up with verses uh, 41 through 47, but as we look at the second part of this sermon here, as Peter begins to explain what is happening, I want us to note three observations about this first sermon. Three observations about this first sermon. First of all, it's a biblical sermon. Peter is preaching a biblical sermon. Where do I get that? Why, why do I say that? I say that because if you, as, as we've read it, there are three Old Testament passages that Peter bases this message upon. And they are, you see them probably in your footnotes, Joel chapter 2, Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse 25, and then Psalm 110 and verses 34 and 35. So my sermons typically have one passage and three points. Peter's first sermon had three passages and multiple points, but one main point that he gets to 
basically there in verse 36, the main point, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. His main point is that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. And he bases that not just upon the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power, but upon these Old Testament texts. So the first one being Joel chapter 2. And we read it, and I want you to notice, first of all, that there's this contrast in Joel chapter 2, which we read about in verse 17 through 21. And you'll see in verse 17, Joel talks about the last days, plural. Verse 17 says, in the last days it shall be. And then he goes on to talk about these manifestations of the Spirit, prophecy and visions and dreams. But he contrasts that in verse 20. He doesn't talk about days, but he talks about day, singular, the day of the Lord. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So Joel makes this point that there are the last days, but there is also the great day. And in the last days, there will be these manifestations of this spirit until these natural manifestations also lead up to the day of the Lord. That day of the Lord meaning the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus will return from the heaven and set up his kingdom. There's the last days, which we take it to be from the beginning of Christ's time, his death, resurrection, his ascension. The last days have begun. We are still in the last days and we are waiting the great day of the Lord. And between the beginning of the last days and the great day of the Lord, there will be these manifestations of the Spirit. And notice that these manifestations, this power of the Spirit is not subject to race or to gender or to status. He says, it's not just men, but your sons and daughters shall prophesy. The Holy Spirit will come upon not just men, but men and women And not just old elder men, not the people respected in your tribes or your cities, but young men will see visions and old men shall dream dreams. And not only that, not only the people of reputation, but even on servants. This is not a caste system that gets the spirit of Jesus, but even the servants, the male and the female servants, will receive this spirit who will endow them with powers. The second passage that, so Joel, Peter through Joel is saying what is happening, what you're seeing, this expression of tongues and and languages is a sign that what Joel said is happening. This that you see is that that he spoke about. The, The prophets are being fulfilled. The last days are here and God's spirit is coming in a new way. The second passage that Peter uh, draws from in his sermon, we see uh, in verse 25 and following, and that is Psalm 16. And Peter's point in using David's psalm, it's a wonderful psalm, I encourage you to go back and, and look at it, but what he is saying is that Psalm 16 is not just a psalm about David's life, about David's rescue, but David foresaw as a prophet that there would be a a king greater than him. And that king, according to Peter, is Jesus. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of these verses. 
So Jesus' resurrection shows us that Jesus' body was not abandoned and his soul was not abandoned to Hades. That's the passage uh, quoted in verse 27 in our Bibles. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. David said, you will not let the Holy One see corruption. And what he meant was, you'll save me from my enemies. But Peter tells us, no, there's more meaning to that than, than what Peter had in mind just for himself, and that is the Holy One, Jesus, will not see corruption, will not de- see decay. He will for three days, and then he will be resurrected, his body made new, death to life. He goes on in verse 29 to expound this scripture. He says, brothers, I say to you that with confidence, David is dead. The patriarch David both he both died and was buried, and his tomb is right here. We can go look at his tomb. Jesus, we can look at his tomb, but it's empty. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And his resurrection fulfills these prophecies, one of them being Psalm 16. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn on oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. The third passage that he uses is Psalm 110. You see it there in verse 34 and 35. And the point there, again, is that David said he had this vision. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, en- until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter's point is, is, is that can't be David because he's looking and he's looking at the Lord and it says, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, there's this God in heaven who has a, a, a confidant, a son, a worker who is also Lord, and he says, sit at my right hand. And Jesus has been crucified, died, he's been buried, and now he's been resurrected, and he sits at the right hand of his father. And it says in 1 Corinthians, until all his enemies are made his footstool, as it says here in Psalm 110. The first sermon was a biblical sermon. Peter is preaching from the text, and we don't have time to turn there, but if we did, we could turn to Acts 17, where we see over and over the apostles. In Acts 17, it's Paul, where it says he goes into the synagogues and he reasons from the scripture. And then he goes, he does that in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, and then he goes on to this place called Berea in Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. It says that the Bereans took what Paul said the claims about Jesus, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what he said was true. The basis of our preaching, the basis of good preaching, is preaching based upon the word of God. And that's why as a church, our mission statement says that we want to center lives on Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is through biblical teaching. And Peter here is the model. He is, he is not just having an experience and saying God must be working here. He is, he is translating or he is interpreting that experience through the word of God. And that's what we must do. All of us can have interesting experiences, but we ultimately have to, have to interpret our experiences through the word of God. And that's what Peter is doing. He's saying, this has happened. The spirit has come and there's all this energy and there's these speaking in tongues. But we have to interpret this through the word of God. What does the word of God say about these things? 
It's interesting to point out, and we should note as we study this, that uh, the Spirit has come in the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. But the Spirit's work does never push aside the Word of God. And sometimes in Christian churches and sometimes Christians tend to pit the Spirit of God against the Word of God. And what you have here in Acts chapter 2 is this Spirit empowerment. I mean, it's wild stuff. And yet, that doesn't mean they neglect the Word of God. They test all those experiences by the Word. So any church that says we're all about the Spirit, but they neglect the Word, is not being true to the first sermon. It's not being true to God. And any church that elevates the Word of God, but doesn't emphasize the Holy Spirit who empowers us, is also an error. Because right here in Acts 2, you have this tremendous movement of the Spirit Spirit of God, and yet you have Peter preaching from the text of Scripture. And you might think that because the Holy Spirit has come and they've experienced this wild experience of of tongues, you might think that Peter would begin preaching this sermon, a topical sermon, if you will, on who is the Holy Spirit. But as we get to these verses, what what is the center point of Peter's message? He doesn't preach about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and they're wowed by it, but his, the focus of his sermon is not the Holy Spirit. The focus of his sermon is Jesus. And that's point number two. Not only is it a biblical sermon, but it's a Christ-centered sermon. I believe we have two references to the Holy Spirit in Peter's sermon here, two. And they're important, important, and we should not neglect them. But what we have over and over is this emphasis on Jesus. See, a Spirit-filled, a spirit-filled church is focused, is centered upon Jesus. Not to the neglect of the Spirit, but Jesus, the Savior, is the center point of God's revelation and the center of all Scripture and to be the center of our lives. So look at what he says about Jesus as he talks in his message, beginning in verse 22. He says that Jesus of Nazareth, hear these words, Jesus, the first explanation he gives, Jesus I want you to know about Jesus, a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So he begins with Jesus' life. He says, you've got to know that Jesus did these mighty wonders and signs. You've heard about them. We've told them. We've told you about them. He talks about Jesus' life. He also, in verse 23, says that this Jesus was delivered up. He was delivered up to be crucified. And it wasn't just man's plan, but it's God's divine plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus didn't go to the cross as a victim. He went to the cross as a volunteer. He willingly laid his life down as the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Not only did he live and do miracles and His miracles attested to who he was. Not only was he delivered up, he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But verse 24, God raised him from the dead. And as you go throughout chapter 2, you realize there's this emphasis on Jesus and there's this particular emphasis on the resurrection. And that's why two weeks from this morning, I will come back to this passage on Easter morning and proclaim the resurrection from Acts chapter 2 again, because the resurrection being the center point and this verification and this victory of Jesus over sin and death. Look down at verse 27. We just quoted this a second ago. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see 
corruption. That's talking about the resurrection. Verse 29 and 30, he compares him to David. And then verse 31, he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, again, he says, this Jesus raised up that we're all witnesses. The focus of Peter's sermon is Jesus. And that's what we've got to know. That's what the first church needed to hear. That's what the church still needs to hear. That's what the non-believing world needs to hear. Who Jesus is. Not here's five ways to improve your marriage, although we could all use some improvement in our marriage. Not here's my political spin. Not here's your felt needs. But this is who Jesus is. The resurrection really happened happened on Easter. We're not celebrating a bunny. We're we're celebrating something that changed history. That Jesus is Lord and Christ because of the resurrection. We don't meet personal needs essentially. We proclaim Christ. Who meets needs but our greatest need is to know Christ and to know his forgiveness through the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It is a Christ-centered message. Some of our elders have been rereading a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by a pastor named Jim Cimbala at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. It's a fascinating read, and it is stirring me up. But in a chapter called The Lure of Novelty, let me say that again, The Lure of Novelty, Cimbala says this, In the church today, we are falling prey to the appeal of new. Old truths of the gospel don't seem spectacular enough. We're restless for the latest, greatest, newest teaching or technique. We pastors in particular seem to search for a shortcut or some dynamic new strategy that will fire up our churches. And what he goes on to talk about is Acts 2 and Acts 4, where the apostles preached with boldness the word of God the word about Jesus. And you don't just need the word of Jesus to get saved. You need the word of Jesus even if you've believed in Jesus before. Hebrews, excuse me, Romans says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You know how we come to know Christ and get our sins forgiven? By hearing the word of God. You know how we grow as followers of Jesus? By hearing the word of God by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So every Sunday that we gather, we don't need to move on from Jesus. We need to move deeper into Jesus. We need the gospel over and over again to refresh our hearts that our standing before God is not by the strength of our marriage. It is not by the good deeds that we've done. It is not because our morality is better than the the people that we work next to. It is not because our kids have turned out pretty well or because we're faithful to come to church. We need the gospel because Jesus renews us by the gospel through his righteousness, not our own. The gospel is what we need. This is a biblical sermon. This is a Christ-centered sermon. And finally, it's a sermon that demands a response. It's a sermon that demands a response. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. The Spirit of God moved in them them as they heard this story, this account, these witnesses of Jesus. 
that God had really come to this earth and he had really delivered them and really paid for their sin through Jesus and conquered that sin and death through the resurrection. They were cut to the heart because it demands a response. And so they said, what should we do? Brothers, what should we do? Verse 38, and Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to beg you, friends, this morning, maybe you are here because for 35 years of your life, you've got up on Sundays and you've gone to church. Maybe you're here because your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend drug you. You don't need to come to church. You need to come to Jesus. Just because you're sitting in here does not mean you know Jesus as Savior. Have you been cut to the heart by who Jesus is and what he's done for you? And you know what I think really cut them to the heart? It says cut to the heart in verse 37, a phrase used nowhere else in the New Testament. I think we get a clue if we look at verse 36. What cut them to the heart is that they, they saw that, this, that God had made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, wait a second, Peter. We didn't crucify him. The Romans crucified him. Ross, I didn't crucify Jesus. I wasn't even alive. I love Jesus. No, he says, you crucified Jesus in your denial Peter says, just as I denied him, your sin, your denial, your apathy to Jesus, put him on the cross to pay for your sins. Through your neglect of Jesus, through your lukewarmness of Jesus, through your rebellion against Jesus, he went to the cross because he loved you and he took the penalty of that sin upon himself. See, we crucified him but he went there voluntarily to forgive us that we might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, be forgiven of our sins and be sons and daughters of God. Anyone who comes to see their sin as the cause for Jesus' death will see their own life as cause for service and sacrifice. If you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and you see, you know, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. You are close to being in Jesus' family. You just need to repent. You just need to turn. You need to change your mind and say, Jesus, I trust in you. And he forgives you of your sin and he gives you his Holy Spirit. Verse 39 says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself will be saved. So what did they do? Verse 41 says, for those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The message of Easter, the message of Jesus from the scriptures demands a response. And maybe you're here this morning and you can't really think of a time that you've actually responded not to religion or not to church, but to the person of Jesus. And I wanna ask you this morning, respond. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. There are some of you here this morning and you've responded to Jesus, but you haven't obeyed this command here to be baptized. And so I want to invite you this morning 
to come and talk to me, to come and talk to one of the elders and say, I want to be baptized. We're going to baptize people on Easter. And the normal flow of salvation in the New Testament is to believe and to show that belief in baptism. Have you believed? Have you been baptized? And if not, why not? Obey Jesus. Respond to this Jesus. For those of you that have believed, for those of you that have been baptized, this is the message we have to take to the world. This is the message we can share with our friends on Easter. I encourage you to grab the invite cards, as Dan said. Bring your friends. Invite your neighbors to hear this good news, the greatest news, the greatest need that every heart has, the need to hear from the Scriptures the centrality of Jesus and respond. Will you bow with me? I want to encourage you this morning. One of the things that we are so privileged to do as elders is to pray for you. Maybe you want to respond this morning to Jesus. Maybe you're just going through a tough time and you need prayer. We're gonna, a few of us will be in the back. We'll be holding candles. If you want to come back during this next song and just be prayed for, whether it's a decision you have upcoming, uh, whether it's a tough thing you're going through, or whether you just need to pray with someone to receive Jesus, I encourage you to come back to the back as we sing this next song, and we will pray for you. Father God, we think that there are other messages that we need. We think there are needs that we have greater than the need of Jesus, but there is no greater need. Father, right now, in the quietness of our hearts, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress upon hearts now who have just been going through the motions but not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus that you would impress upon them right now to trust in you. And others who have not been obedient to the call of baptism, we pray that you would stir in their heart right now to make that step of faith and to be baptized in front of their church family. And for all of us, Father, embolden us to preach the word of God with courage and what a season to do it as Easter gives us that very special reminder of the uniqueness of Jesus through his resurrection. Holy Spirit, move among us. For the name and glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.